happy. But let's open to Acts chapter 19, if you would. And tonight, we're going to continue our study with this question, who is the Holy Spirit? And our scripture reading is from this 19th chapter, but you can just look at it there and I'll refer to it. I'm not actually going to read these verses again, but I want to refer to the question that was asked by Paul in verse number 2 and was answered by a group of believers in Ephesus. Paul asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, well, we're not so much, we're not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And I pointed out that it's important for us to understand that he, he did not ask them, do you know the Holy Spirit exists? Because they would have known that. If they were disciples, they would have known that. But their answer actually reflects the misunderstanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, unfortunately, our, our King James Version leaves us wondering just a bit in the understanding their reply. And as you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan in any way, shape, or form of modern Bible versions. And the English Standard Version, which has become a, a favorite of many of the Reformed people, states the reply to this question in this way, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And I think that translation is, is worse for us because it seems to just pointedly emphasize that they'd not heard of the Holy Spirit in any way. That we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit at all. Well, the American Standard Version clarifies the answer somewhat by saying, Nay, we did not so much as hear whether the Holy Spirit was given. Now, that's not really... Uh, it's not in opposition to what the King James has to say. It just gives a little bit better sense of this, of this answer. So their answer is that they did not know that the Holy Spirit had come to work in New Testament believers in a special way, in a way that was unknown to people in the Old Testament. Now, the Holy Spirit has always been in the world, but since the coming of, of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit into the world, the Holy Spirit has become active in the lives of believers in a very special, conscious way. So that's still a problem in modern Christianity and understanding who the Holy Spirit is. People don't really understand how he works. They don't understand um, his position or how he fits into the Godhead. They don't understand why we need him. They don't understand what he's able to do for them. And so their misunderstandings lead them in the wrong direction and actually leave them without access to this very special ministry that he has for believers. So we're trying to answer that question, who is the Holy Spirit? Now, I want to catch you up just a little bit on what we've talked about thus far. And if you've uh, missed the previous messages and you want to know more about these uh, couple or three points that I'm just going to mention to you, uh, you'll want to get the other messages to hear those. But the first thing that we talked about is that the Holy Spirit is a person, that he is not an influence, he's not an inanimate force, he's not impersonal, but personal. That's because he has all the characteristics that make him a person. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is deity. He is a person, and he is a person in the Godhead. See, our God is a trinity. There are three persons in the trinity, and all of them are equal in every way. They're one in essence, but they're three in persons. And I know that that is one of the most difficult doctrines in the Bible to understand, but nevertheless, that's what the Bible teaches, that there is a real distinction in the persons of the Godhead, but there is no distinction in the essence of the Godhead. 
So all three persons of the Godhead possess all of the attributes of deity, but they are distinct persons with different operations. They are not three gods in one, but they are one God manifested in three persons. So our purpose is to answer that question, who is the Holy Spirit? So we first have to recognize that he is God, and then we broaden out the discussion that since he is God, then what does he do? What is his peculiar ministry in the Godhead? Well, that takes us to the third point of our outline, which is the Holy Spirit is God's agent. Or we can say that when the Holy Spirit, or rather when God works in the world, that he works through the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended to the Father after his death, he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit, and it's through the Holy Spirit that God's work is done in the world today. Now, last time I gave you three areas of the Holy Spirit's work, which I will mention again. He is the agent in the ministry of creation. That is that God worked through the Holy Spirit to form the world, to create the world and all things that are in it, and it is through the Holy Spirit that life is sustained in the world. Next, he is the agent in the ministry of Christ, that it was the Holy Spirit that, was, that conceived Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It was the Holy Spirit that taught him as he grew. It was the Holy Spirit that prepared him for his ministry. And it was the Holy Spirit that guided him through all those hard days of, of his approach to the cross. And then very importantly, it was the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The Apostle Paul said that in Romans chapter 8. And he also said that that work of the Holy Spirit is also our guarantee that we will be raised from the dead because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Thirdly, we learned that he's the agent in the ministry of the canon. And that means that he is God's agent in giving us the Holy Scriptures. The canon is the complete word of God. Uh, men wrote the scriptures, but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write God's words. So he is the author of those words, and he is the protector of those words, which means that he preserves the words, so that even today, when we pick up our copy of the Bible, we can say that we have God's inerrant, inspired word. We have exactly what God wants us to know. And then it's the Holy Spirit that opens our heart and illumines our mind to what this word means. And without the Holy Spirit's work in that area, the Bible would be nothing but black words on white paper. We simply couldn't understand it. And that's why the vast majority of the world really sees no worth in the Bible. I mean, they think the Bible may give us a moral compass, but there's nothing supernatural about it. And there isn't anything supernatural about it until the Holy Spirit takes it. He takes the word and he applies it to the believer's heart. He opens up the eyes of understanding so we know what God would have us to know. And the word then becomes the means by which we're born again. And so belief of those words and what it tells us about what Jesus did for us, that's the way the Holy Spirit brings salvation to the sinner. Now that's where we want to continue tonight. The Holy Spirit is the agent in the ministry of creation. He's the agent in the ministry of Christ. He is the agent in the ministry of the canon. And now fourthly, he is the agent in the ministry of a Christian. Now, as I said last week, the best place to begin is always at the beginning. And so we want to start here with, with what the Holy Spirit does to make us Christians. How do we become Christians in the first place? Now, I'm going to give you 
and the next message is a list of the Holy Spirit's work in the Christian. And the place that we begin is how a person actually comes to the faith. And so that brings us to the topic of regeneration. That the Holy Spirit is the one, he's the person of the Godhead who regenerates the believer. He's the one who takes a spiritually dead sinner and gives him life. Now, regeneration, I hope you recognize, is the same as what we call the new birth. Uh, It's the same as being born again. And we find that term born again in that familiar passage of John chapter 3. So I'd like you to turn, if you would please, to John chapter 3. And we're just going to look for a few minutes at these scriptures in their context. And as you know, this is the conversation that took, took place between Jesus and Nicodemus in which Jesus introduced a concept to him that was completely foreign to his understanding of spirituality. And you can tell by the way that he responded to Jesus that he was given information that he'd never heard. Now, Nicodemus came to Jesus acknowledging that he came from God, but he wasn't quite sure of the message that God had given him to bring. Now, we look at verse number 3. It says, Jesus answered and said unto him, or to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that is the first time that we see this term, born again, in the Scriptures. And so we know that Nicodemus would never have found this in any of his studies in the Old Testament. The words, these words are not there. And it's not that people that were in the Old Testament were not regenerated by the Holy Spirit when they believed. But those people would have had to ask the very same question that these disciples ask in Acts chapter 19. That they didn't know about the special way that the Holy Spirit works in a person to bring him into spiritual life. So they didn't know about regeneration in the way that we know it today. So Nicodemus replied to Jesus' statement in verse number 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And there's proof that being born again was a completely foreign concept to him because he thought Jesus was talking about some miracle by which a, a grown man could actually go back into his mother's womb again and then be born again, delivered in childbirth for a second time. Now, he may have thought that Jesus was able to do that because he did say, you're a teacher that came from God and you do things there, you do miracles that no man can do except God is with him. So he may have thought Jesus could do that. But this is when Jesus explained to him that he was not talking about natural birth, but a spiritual birth and that it is the Holy Spirit who is the agent. In verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now, those verses contain so much theology that we could stay right here and we could wander around here, one of the halls of the greatest universities of truth that anybody's ever seen. The new birth, this is telling us, is accomplished by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And it's done in a way that's above our comprehension. 
Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who, who gives us spiritual life. He actually raises a dead man from the tomb of his, of his spiritual death, and he gives him life, enabling him to believe, to repent of, the, of his sins, and to believe the gospel. Now, I could take some time tonight developing those thoughts, and we could go on, and we could talk about the ordo salutis, which means the order of salvation. And we would ask the question, does repentance and faith produce the new birth or does the new birth produce repentance and faith and that uh, repentance and faith that's a very important question and the answer to that question forms the basis of a salvation in which man must cooperate with god or a salvation in which god is completely sovereign and that's what we talk about when we speak of the difference between a monergistic birth and a synergistic new birth And all of you, I think, know where I stand, uh, that I believe that regeneration is monergistic, meaning that it is affected by the Holy Spirit alone in his work upon the soul. And we substantiate that by many New Testament texts. Among them is what we've just read in John chapter 3, verse 8, where Jesus said, The Holy Spirit comes like the wind, and he works, and we're unaware of his presence, and we're brought to life, and that's when we repent and believe. And then we could go to Ephesians chapter 2 where the Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sin. We are spiritually dead and then the Spirit brings us to life and we repent and believe. And the reason that we can't repent and believe until that happens is because spiritually dead people can't do anything. We have to be brought to life in order to believe. And who's the one that gives life? Well, we can't give life to ourselves. It's the Holy Spirit that gives life. Only God can do that. And so we throw out any idea of synergism in the new birth. But we don't want to misunderstand that because the new birth, although it's monergistic, at that point we've not yet been brought to salvation. The new birth always produces the second part, which is repentance and faith. And those are synergistic. That's when we cooperate with God and we repent of our sins. Now, the Holy Spirit, of course, is the one who gives us repentance and faith, but he does not believe for us and he does not repent for us. That we have to do ourselves. And so the Holy Spirit is God's agent in the new birth. Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And he means by that that the flesh can only give life to flesh, And the Spirit is the only one that can give life to the Spirit. Now, just in passing, if you look back at verse number 5 again, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that verse is not a little bit controversial. What does Jesus mean when he says, born of water? Well, there are some that put baptism in that place, and they say that baptism is an essential part of salvation, but we know that can't be true because it raises two problems for us. It raises a problem of sacramental salvation and also of sacerdotal salvation. So we know that Jesus could not be talking about baptism in the passage. Then there are others that say that what Jesus is speaking of is the amniotic fluid in the natural birth. So that the first part speaks of the physical birth and the second speaks of the spiritual birth. But to me, that's the worst explanation that you can give for this. And that's because it seems kind of of obvious to say that a person must be born physically before he can be born spiritually. 
And Nicodemus may not have had very much understanding, but I don't think it was that bad. I, I think he had that much pretty much pretty much down. And then there are others who say that water in that passage refers to the word of God. And Arthur Pink holds that opinion. And in his exposition of the Gospel of John, he makes a very good case for that viewpoint in bringing 1 Peter one twenty three into this. And he says, it's, Peter says in that passage, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And I think that's a good explanation. And I could accept that explanation, as many good Bible students, students do, but I think there's a better one. Uh, I favor the one that was John Gill's viewpoint and also John Calvin's viewpoint, that water and spirit are in apposition. And that means that spirit explains water, that they mean the same thing. And so we have here a double emphasis on the spirit where water signifies the inward purification that the Holy Spirit does in the soul. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And so there you see washing, and that brings to the mind water and purification. And then we have the renewing, which is the new birth. But regardless of which of those two interpretations that you take, I think both of them are good. The very important piece of this is that the new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we also need to bring into the discussion how that the Holy Spirit works regeneration. Now, does he just zap us and then all of a sudden we're saved and we're born again? Well, no, the Bible teaches that there is an operation that takes place, that the Holy Spirit works in us to bring us to conviction, to make us understand that we are sinners in need of the grace of God, So we're not saved in ignorance. It's not that the Holy Spirit just comes upon us and we just say, what happened? What happened to me? What hit me? How did that happen? No, we actually come to the realization of sin. The Holy Spirit makes us see what we couldn't see before, that we're sinners that are doomed to hell and there is no way that we can help ourselves. And so he causes us to give up any thoughts that we have a self-help salvation. He causes us to give up thoughts that there's any religious activity that we can do to help ourselves, but rather we have to surrender ourselves completely to the work of God in our heart. Paul explains to us how that's done when he talks about how the law does this. The Holy Spirit puts us up against the measuring rod of God's law, which demands perfection. And we see that we're unable to keep or be perfect. We can't make the grade that God's law puts in front of us. So we can't live to the standard. And what that does is to drive us to Calvary. It puts us at the foot of the cross to seek righteousness and the forgiveness of our sins. Now, all of what I'm telling you here takes place in a flash. It takes place in almost an instant when the Holy Spirit makes us realize our helpless condition then gives us the faith needed to receive Christ as Savior. Jesus said in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, I want you to note that the principal teaching in that scripture is that the world rejected Christ. 
And so God sent the Holy Spirit into the world to convict people of that terrible sin of rejecting Christ. And he says that all the Christ rejectors will come into judgment. But we also ought to note that what the Holy Spirit does in regeneration is that he takes that very same truth and he drives that point down deep into our soul. He makes us understand that, and that's what brings us to repentance and faith. And because of that, it's why that you will never see a person that is born again who is not also a repentant believer in Jesus Christ. And that's actually one of the objections that's raised against the doctrine is that people say, well, if, you're, if regeneration produces repentance and faith, then you actually have born-again people that may not ever come to salvation or come to faith in Jesus Christ. But that's impossible to happen because one always follows the other. The regeneration always brings the repentance and faith in such a way that we don't even say that there's a time difference between that happening. So we don't talk about time at all. There is no time difference. We only speak of a logical order, not a chronological one. So the Holy Spirit then regenerates us. We begin our lives by this regeneration. That's how we become Christians in the first place. And when you're born of the Spirit, you can be sure of this, that God is a parent that never forsakes his children. So you never have to worry about falling out of, uh, of your salvation because when you become a child of God you are forever a child of God and then the Holy Spirit when he regenerates you he becomes active in your life so what does he do well that's the next work that we have in a Christian and that is the work of sanctification now a few weeks ago I was telling the forum class that there are some churches that do their best just to get rid of all the theological terms And they say, well, there are just so many people that don't know the vocabulary of the Bible. So the best thing to do is just get rid of all these different terms that we use and just not talk about them. Well, every day when I talk with people, I realize more and more how much this is true, that people really don't know the vocabulary of the Bible. But what we will not do is get rid of the terms because they're in the Bible, and so we need to teach them, and we need to make people aware of them. We need to educate them about these terms that are in the Bible. Now, as you know, our church is not really geared towards Sunday morning Christians. Now, what I try to do is make things simpler on Sunday mornings because of the crowd that we have, but there's no way that you could ever come to the conclusion that a 40 or 45-minute sermon that you hear on Sunday morning is going to make you the kind of Christian that you need to be. The Holy Spirit's work is to help us to grow in the understanding of the Word. And if people become content with a Sunday morning sermon and think that's all they ever need, that's all the Bible education they ever need, then I'm telling you they're destined for a very weak Christianity. A visitor said something to me on the way out the door the other night. She said, I didn't even know that churches had services on Sunday night. And I said to her, well, as far as I know, we're the only church in Roner Park that does. And that, that just goes to show you that people are, are content with a one-third dose of teachings during the week when they could get so much more. There's service on Sunday night and there's service on Wednesday nights. And let me just throw in a little plug for Wednesday night service because it doesn't do any good for me to tell the people on Wednesday night this. They're already here. So let me throw in a plug for that. Some of you sitting in here tonight used to come on Wednesday nights. 
And now you don't even think about it being Wednesday night anymore. It's been so long since you've been that Wednesday light is no longer an issue with you. Wednesday night comes and goes, and it's as if it doesn't even exist. As far as your spiritual life is concerned, there's nothing going on on Wednesday night. Keep that in mind. Now, let's talk about the hows and whys of sanctification. What does that really mean? Now, we need to know the terms. It's in the biblical vocabulary, so what does it mean? Well, the very basic meaning of the word means to set apart. That you were over here with the rest of the world before you became a Christian, and you were dead in sins just like they were, and you lived just like them, and you loved the pleasures of sin just like them, but then God saved you, he regenerated you, and he brought you out of this place where you were and put you over here on this side, and he separated you from the world... And now he expects you to live for him. So when you're born again, the Holy Spirit gives you a new nature. You're you're set apart to fulfill his ultimate purpose for your life. And we all know what that purpose is, don't we? It's to glorify God. And so, as I preached this morning, what we do is we no longer serve self, we serve God. And so just like Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, we we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow Jesus Christ. We don't live for ourselves any longer. And when we get saved, when we are regenerated, we receive a new designation. Sanctification has as its root word the same word as saint and holy. Same as saint and holy. So, not all. Dead people are saints, or not all saints are dead people, maybe I should say. There are living saints. And what we ought not to do is to accept the world's definition of that word saint. It's a Bible designation, and it stands for any person that is born again. And so if you're regenerated, if you're born again, if you are a believer, you are sanctified, and you are as sanctified as you will ever be. You are as holy as you will ever be. And that's because holiness is not your operation. It's God's operation. That's what we call positional sanctification. And that is a one-time act. It doesn't relate to any stage of your Christian growth. That when you're saved, you are sanctified, you are set apart for God. And that's the way the Apostle Paul used the term in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, and also Peter used it in 1 Peter 1 verse 2. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul said, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Peter wrote, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit under the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Interestingly, there was a preacher that I was reading after, and he tried to get around the doctrine of election in those two verses. And he said, well, this means that the Spirit is sanctified. It doesn't mean that the Spirit is sanctified. It means that we are sanctified. The believer is sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and we were designated in our sanctification, or we were designated to be sanctified when we were chosen by God. 
And the backup verse for that is Romans 8.29, which says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. So being conformed to the image of Christ is our sanctification. So we start out with that. Every single person who is a believer, every person that is justified is also sanctified. We're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, set apart and made holy. And so you may say, well, I don't always feel holy. And I would say to you, and you don't always act holy either. That's why preachers preach sermons on Christian living. So, but whether you feel it, whether you actually feel it or not, you're holy as far as your position in God's family. I mean, as I said, you're as holy as you're ever going to get in that regard. But there's another sense that we talk about sanctification, and this particular part needs a lot of work. And this is what we call our progressive sanctification. That's the part that takes place every single day as you grow in the grace of God. Now, positionally... All of us of believers are the same in Christ, but progressively, all of us are at different stages of our Christian growth. So every time that you see a command in Scripture that talks about living a holy life, that's the Bible talking about progressive sanctification. Now let me give you some examples of this. Uh, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, the Bible's filled with these examples, but we're going to look at just two of these and so you can get the point. And in the first one, you'll see the word holy... And uh, that's part of the meaning of sanctification. And so in 1 Peter, starting at the 13th verse of chapter 1, Peter said, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Now there you see obedience. He talks about obedient children or children that have given up the ways that we used to walk, children that, are, that were once ignorant of God's ways of life. Verse 15 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, or in all of your life, the way that you live, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now you say, no, now wait just a minute. God commands us to be holy, but you said we're already holy. You said everybody that's saved is holy in God's eyes. Well, that's the positional sanctification. Here we're talking about the progressive sanctification. This is the other side. God commands us to be holy. So he says, live a holy life. You need to be like me. You need to have God-like qualities. And the Bible explains what those are. And then if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6... Here we find the idea of separation, that is, coming out of the world to be different from the world. And that is not something that you just comfortably sit back and you say, well, that's all taken care of. I've been sanctified, I'm holy, and so I'm fine in this area. No, 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 this is the part that really, really takes some conscious effort. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 Paul says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part is he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. 
As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, if you want me to be very frank with you, about what these scriptures are telling us, here is the straight truth of what Paul says. There is a lot of pressure on you when you own the Lord's name. When you become a Christian, you're put into the pressure cooker of Christian living. That God has something that he expects from you. That there is an obligation that you have to serve God as your Lord and Master. And that means that before you ever say a word that you have to think is what I'm about to say the thing that God would have me to say. Is what I'm about to say the expression of the presence of God in my life. And you nearly, really seriously need to think about that and all these issues that we have going on and things like social networking and things like that. As a Christian, you have an absolute obligation to the Lord Jesus Christ to say absolutely the right thing, to use the right language, to present yourself in the right way. Now, some time ago, I I heard that there was a former member of our church that was just spewing out all kinds of venom about the church on Facebook. And this person wondered why that we wouldn't let them into the leadership of the church. Well, she pretty much had her answer to the question. Leaders guard themselves so they bring glory to God. They say the right things. And you're certainly not going to do that. You're not going to get there by attacking the Lord's church with gossip. The scripture says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. So you're not going to attack his bride. You're not going to attack the beloved and claim the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You just can't do both of those things. And then I would say there are some of you that may have no problems at all stepping out at night to inhabit dens of iniquity where booze flows and where lechers are lusting and predators are prowling and the company that you keep are the hateful, are just plainly hateful of God and his ways. What you have to do in every place that you go and everything that you do, you have to say, is this holiness? Is this my sanctification? Is this what God wants me to do? Am I in an environment where God wants me to be and where I can glorify Jesus Christ by the activity that I'm engaged in? You have a responsibility to live for Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's sanctification. That's his work in you. So you're carrying around an awesome responsibility when you claim Christ. Do you realize that? Now, you have your Bible there open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You just slide up the page a little bit to the end of the fifth chapter. Paul says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, one last thought. I'm, we got started early, so we'll get done just a little bit early. As a Christian, in your sanctification, there's also something that you need to think about, and that is your personal presentation. How do you look? How do you look? Could someone mistake you for being a member of the devil's crowd? 
Now, do you know what the world does? The world teaches our children to do their own thing. The world teaches children to throw off all the structure, get rid of anything that restricts their personal freedoms. And unfortunately, Christians teach their own children these kinds of things. And so the world teaches children to be individualistic, that what you really need to do is stand out in the crowd. And while they teach them that, at the very same time, they're teaching them a standard. And the standard that they're teaching them is the world standard. But let me tell you something about Christianity. We're not supposed to draw attention to ourselves. That, that, that's not what we're all about. We're, we're not supposed to be individualistic. And you know why that we're not supposed to be? You know why you don't call attention to yourself and you do something to yourself to make you look different so that you stand out in a certain way, that you're different from everybody else in your congregation? You know why you don't do that? Because individualism is a function of pride. When you have to stand out and be something different in, 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 the, in the way that I'm talking about here, that is a function of a person's pride. The Bible does not teach us to be individualistic. It teaches us to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. And so everything that we are, everything we say, everything that we do, every way that we look has to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. That is the sanctification that Paul talks about here. So if I'm going to dress in any way, if I'm going to groom myself in any way, then it'll be for this purpose. Can people see Christ in me? Do they see me as something different, as this, as one who is a real Christian, one who is following the Savior? Not individualistic and different because I want to stand out in the crowd some way, but because I want to stand for Jesus Christ. That's what they see. Do they see the image of Christ? And you need to think about those things. That is the Holy Spirit's work in us. That is our sanctification. So Paul said, you need to walk with Christ. He said, that is the will of God, even your sanctification. Well, I'm going to stop with that. I mean, sanctification is a great Bible doctrine. We need to understand this. We need to know how the Holy Spirit works and sanctifies our daily walk with God. And there's a lot more to this. Uh, sanctification becomes a very, very difficult issue for many, many Christians. And it's a place that people just seem to leave off and they just don't even think about it or they don't care about it. But as I said, it's a Bible word. Set apart, holy, sanctified are all the same thing. And that is what God expects us to be. Ambassadors of Jesus Christ, sanctified, holy by the Holy Spirit. Well, more next time few weeks, a couple, three weeks down the road, we'll look at this again and talk about some more ways that the Holy Spirit works in the ministry of a Christian. Father, we thank you for the time we spent in your word tonight. Lord, we talk about important subjects, and sometimes it's not comfortable for us. But as we said in the message this morning, we have to understand where this disconnect that all of us have with, or many people have, with their living out their their Christianity and being something different, uh, being some other type of Christian other than what the Bible says. And we have to say there is no other type than what the Bible says. So that means if we're not following Scripture and if we're not doing what 
the Holy Spirit would have us to do, then we're not really testifying of Christ in our lives. And if we're unwilling to testify Christ, we may not even be Christians. And we need to determine, are we really believers? Believers follow Christ. Help us, Lord, to understand these things and to correct issues in our lives and not be a not be a bad testimony before others in our church or anyone else for that matter. Help us to stand for you and accept your will for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.